welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer and Murray Hunt, and hopefully technology willing, Helen Mountfield. We're going to be joined in a moment by our guest, the Shadow Lord Chancellor, David Lammy. If it's one thing that COVID has taught us, apart from washing our hands regularly, it's that our perceptions of the world can change in a single moment. A world in which we shake hands with friends, let alone give them a hug, are like golden memories of a bygone era. And these past days have potentially witnessed another moment of change. When a couple of weeks ago we first thought about recording a pod with David, the plan was to talk about the constitutional ramifications of COVID and his agenda as the newly appointed Secretary of State for Justice, his ideas for reforming criminal justice, prisons and the promotion of human rights. But the brutal killing of George Floyd and the reaction to it has changed things. It's led to a change reaction in many countries, not simply of protest, but an increasing acknowledgement of the need to address the persistent and pervasive impact of systemic racism. In this sense, it would seem inappropriate for a human rights law podcast not to be trying to understand this moment, but all the more so when we have as our guest one of the most prominent and thoughtful public figures on questions not just about the manifestation of systemic racism, but someone who, come the next election, may be in a position to affect change as the head of the justice system. So David is the ideal person to ask not just how society should respond to the events of the last week or so, but how the legal system should. Now, as pretty much anyone listening to a legal podcast will know, David is MP for Tottenham, having first been elected following the death of Bernie Grant in 2000. And unlike many recent potential Lord Chancellors, David is actually a lawyer. He's a graduate of SOAS and obtained his master's from Harvard Law School before starting a career at the bar. Uh, And like most really bright barristers, he realised it was a career worth getting out of. And his rise in the parliamentary ranks, both in government and in opposition, has been swift. What, to my mind, separates David from so many parliamentarians is that he combines the role of a campaigner with that of a public intellectual. He's written and broadcast on a range of topics extensively on race and inequality, whilst campaigning against its manifestations, not least the scandal of the treatment of the Windrush generation. A reflection of David's standing is that whilst in opposition, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, asked him to chair the review into the over-representation of black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals in the criminal justice system. And we'll talk uh, about the extent to which those recommendations in the Lamy report have been implemented later. David, firstly, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Can we start by looking at the position in the United States over the past week or so? I mean, as we know, there's a very long and very bitter history in the United States of the violent killing of black men. And the past few years, there have been a series of high profile cases. I mean, it was only six years ago that Eric Garner was filmed essentially being strangled to death while also shouting, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Now, they've led to protests, but nothing like we've seen on this scale Uh, and certainly no sense that the wider population has woken up in the way that it perhaps has to issues of systemic racism. Is that right? Is there something different between what we're witnessing now? And and if if there is something different, why is that? Well, I think there are two things that uh, lay on top of where we are today. One is Donald Trump um, and Donald Trump's attempts, frankly, to stoke the fire. Um, Donald Trump is a populist nationalist leader. Um, And uh, frankly, politically, 
um, I think it's very, very clear that he would actually prefer the headlines in the United States not to be about the coronavirus, which I think um, worldwide opinion is he's dealt with incredibly badly. Uh, he would clearly prefer headlines not to be about the economic recession that flows after coronavirus. He's quite content, frankly, for what we're seeing in the States, which is a kind of civil war uh, of which... Uh, listeners who are around in the 60s will be familiar with, and anyone who's familiar with American history knows that this reverberates from time to time. And if you like, the, it's been said before that the original sin of the United States is the race fault line, um, notwithstanding um, civil rights, notwithstanding the end of Jim Crow. Again, I hope your audience is familiar with what's been described as the prison industrial complex, the work of people like Brian Stevenson, and really the way in which the United States, um, after no longer overtly discriminating against individuals following civil rights, then began to routinely, both using federal law and state-based law, um, jail um, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans um, and actually change the law, um, things like the changes they made to to um, uh, drug laws um, uh, actually under the Clintons, to jail swathes of black men particularly. And I remember making a visit to Mississippi um, probably about three, four years ago now. And I and there was something that struck me as odd when I went to the state penitentiary in the middle of Mississippi. Um, and I, I, I've been to lots of prisons all over the world. And, and, and so I couldn't work out what it was. And it wasn't the electric chair, by the way, which they were very keen that I should sit in. And for obvious reasons, as a lumbering black man, I chose not to. But but it wasn't that. It was it was actually it was actually the fact that I suddenly realized that in this massive state penitentiary, there were no male uh, prison, prison guards. Most of the guards were black women. And when I asked why the guards in this huge male prison were black women, they said because there were no uh, white men didn't want the job because it was badly paid in the local community and black men weren't available for the job because the vast majority of them had criminal records which ruled them out doing it. That is the nature of the race fault line uh, in the United States uh, that we're seeing playing out, stoked by Donald Trump and then also by coronavirus. And that's in two ways. It's in a narrow sense because black uh, populations are experiencing a higher incidence of death and actually there's a sort of internal grief uh, and an internal reckoning with the poverty and reality of the black experience um, in the United States that lies underneath some of this. And two, more broadly, the reasons why we're debating it, I suspect, um, today here in the UK is because, of course, all of us are at home. All of us are watching the news. All of us are on social media. All of us, even despite those of us who are working, have a degree of pause partly because we're not commuting to work like we normally do. And therefore, this is a moment that has cut through to a wider population. I mean, I've had messages from extended family who are white, from friends who are white, who I would not describe as sort of North London liberal uh, Labour types. 
who are pausing and asking much more searching questions about race than they've ever done before in the context of our own country. So I think that's the phenomenon. And by the way, uh, I, I would also say that this moment in time that we're in is likely to continue up to November because um, it's in Donald Trump's interest to continue up to November. Now, look, we might be debating uh, in a few weeks' time his position on LGBTQ issues because he, he might well pick on another group, if you like. But what I'm saying is the envelope, the moment, I think, will go up to November. And it's possible also that other themes, other 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 issues will also uh, suddenly come into come into focus, as I say, because people suddenly have a time to look at issues uh, in a different way. So, I mean, the, uh, I mean, a large chunk of the kind of history of race relations in the United States has been reactive to both atrocities and to protests. I mean, think of Emmett Till's in the late 1950s, the response over the next few years with the introduction of the Voting Rights Act, etc. Do you see this again as that sort of pivotal moment? And what are going to be the factors? I mean, you've identified November with the presidential election, but I mean, is, it, is this a moment in which one should be optimistic or is it going to turn on what happens at the, at the, at the, simply by whether Trump is returned or not? I think it will pivot largely on whether Donald Trump um, is elected. I mean, look, I know, I feel like I know the United States very well. I studied there at Harvard. I worked there as a young lawyer. I, I visit the country very regularly. I have many friends and family in the country. The, the And it's a country of extremes. So it's the country, yes, of Barack Obama, but it's also the country that almost in reaction to that then pivots to uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and, and there is, you know, the, it, 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 this... This, this whole debate is right in the pivot of a central culture war, if you like, that, it, that, that has played out in the United States in uh, many election cycles um, in different ways. But I do think that this is a central moment. Now, what I would say is some people thought after the crash of 2008, they breathed a sigh of relief because it was almost a reaction to that crash gave us Barack Obama but actually, it turns out that the reaction to that crash was not Barack Obama. Uh, he had been determined in the American psyche uh, sometime actually before the crash. The reaction was Donald Trump. And the truth is uh, that um, we're having this conversation at, a, at a, an extraordinarily challenging time, not just because of coronavirus um, and the effects of coronavirus, which could well be with us for uh, two years um, uh, until it plays right through the population, particularly if there's not a vaccine found, uh, but actually because of the recession depression that follows. And wherever there is a recession depression, um, you will get reactionary forces uh, that seek to blame um, the other, that seem to, the, the xenophobic in tendency, um, that are populist in feel, uh, in order to take the eye off the economic pain that's really gone and who really is responsible. And so I'm afraid this is going to be a bumpy decade. Uh, and I think you're also seeing, you're also seeing generational tides. You know, what, what heartens me about this moment is the way that we're seeing millennials and Generation Y, the children of the boomers, uh, going out to protest black and white. It's, there's something actually quite, 
exciting about that moment. It's it's exciting for me. You know, I was on Question Time um, last week and uh, I said to my staff, "Mm, do you think I could use the phrase structural racism? Uh, and, and you know, just a month or so ago, I wouldn't have bothered. You know, I mean, just like you know, because Britain really has, I've got to tell you, an incredibly immature discourse on issues of race. Very intelligent people who've been to Oxford and Cambridge do not know what they're talking about when it comes to race. Many of our journalists don't know what they're talking about when it comes to race. Uh, my wife and I have read some fantastic articles in the last week or so uh, when it when it comes to race, but actually. On the whole, if you think of the usual commentators, and I'm not going to name them, they haven't said that much. Um, And the reason they haven't said that much is because they haven't got that much to say. They're really not very experienced. Uh, And that's part of the challenge you have in the context of our own country. So um, I'm I'm joyous about the new generation, but the new generation are a long way from power. And I suppose my political instincts tell me that it could be an up and down process. But clearly, if Joe Biden was to win in November, that's a huge moment, not just for the United States, it's globally. And actually, back in our own country, I think there'll be a lot more scrutiny on Keir Starmer because it might signal that the world was 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 prepared to move away from the populist nationalism that's been the sort of credo uh, of the recent times. Well, David, I, I want to... Move, if I may, at that point to look at the UK, move away from the States. I mean, here, one of the things is, as you alighted upon, that's been kind of striking about the reaction in the last few days is, A, there has been a widespread reaction. B, it's included white and black, young people out on the streets. And C, it's it's kind of been focused on our own British experience. I mean, not least the removal of statues in Bristol and elsewhere. I mean, again, is this, is this a moment of potential change here in terms of how we talk about race and inequality? Well, uh, look at the language of Priti Patel in the Commons this week. Look at the language of Boris Johnson in the Commons this week. And I've got to tell you, if you look underneath the surface, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like they're up to the moment. Um, What's really happening in in, in the UK? Well, this this is about whether your listeners believe that the UK is a country that's genuinely reckoned with its past. Now, instinctively here in the UK, we are incrementalists. We tend to creep forward um, and sometimes creep backwards and then creep a few more steps forward. We're not into big revolutions. Um, and in a sense, my own sense is that Britain's ability to really wrestle with its um, colonial history, that moment has not really happened. I mean, I remember when Tony Blair rung me up um uh, well, it was, this was back in 2007. I was in the Justice Department at the time with Charlie Faulkner, uh, and he asked me to go and be the Minister of Culture. And he uh, he 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 said, "Look, David, I really want you to help the country prepare for the abolition of the, uh, the bicentenary, the abolition of the of the slave trade." At the time, Tony expressed regret for what had happened. 
I remember very well that some cities, that we had a big uh, commemoration in the Westminster Abbey uh, here in London, the museums, the BBC. I had to go along with Valerie Amos and kick the BBC into putting on some, some, some quality dramas, productions, radio shows, which they did. Um, Liverpool was up for it. Hull was up for it because it was a city of Wilberforce. Bristol really struggled. And it's interesting that Bristol struggled because we're seeing that play out today. But it's also the case that whilst Britain was up for a discussion about the abolition of the slave trade, it wasn't really up for a discussion about the actuality or the reality of, 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 of what slavery gave to this country. And in a sense, I think I've always believed that that's not just about hanging your head in shame and with guilt. It means that we're slightly hampered on a global stage, standing up in the way, say, that a Canada can stand up and genuinely claim to have embraced its multiculturalism in the 21st century. And and I just think that Britain, there's a rhetoric, there's a language of fair play, but there's a there's a there's a condition largely because slavery was done overseas. It wasn't done domestically. And also, of course, and I wouldn't I would say this, wouldn't I, as a Labour politician, because if the original sin of the United States is race, um, then the perception, at least here, is that the, 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 the fault line is class, not race. But of course, it's both is the truth. Uh, Sorry, David. I was just going to ask you just to kind of identify for me where you see the link between our historical experience of colonialism, um, our role in um, slavery up until (laughs) Wilberforce. Um, Because it's easy in the American context. You've got slavery, you've got Jim Crow, you've got segregation. You can kind of understand the continuum that leads you to police officers thinking that they can strangle in public members uh, of the public. I suppose suppose that, I mean, that's that's a long discussion, Richard, but I suppose what I, I would say is, the understanding of structural racism in the UK uh, is pretty limited. I Most people understand race as overt racial discrimination. I don't like that black guy. I'm going to call him names. Uh, and so, of course, there's a calling out of National Front and BMP traditions, although that's now more widespread because of social media than it, than, it, than it almost used to feel. But what there isn't is an understanding that in the end, structural racism is about, goes back to scientific racism. It was many scientists here in Europe and certainly in the UK that invented this stuff. And they, they, and they created institutions that were about power and that power was about limiting others. So for example, when we talk about the Windrush generation, it, there's almost a sort of naive assumption that these people arrived in here uh, following the Second World War because they fancied coming. There wasn't an understanding that what we were doing was calling out to the empire. Um, and they and they were very keen to come because we'd actually run down the Caribbean after uh, the, the sort of plantation economies uh, of the slave trade. And there were no jobs in the Caribbean. So they were very keen to come and to work hard. And actually, the, 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 the sort of the insult of the treatment of these people as the descendant of enslaved people is that they're British by virtue of the fact that it was Britain that took them across the water to the Caribbean um, in the first place. What I mean by that is uh, if you are in Canada, if you are in New Zealand, and uh, and at least in the 
discussion in Australia, even though uh, the reality is still somewhat different. There is an understanding that you have to approach Indigenous communities in a particular way uh, because of the awful way in which they were treated. There is far less of an understanding that when you're talking about African Caribbean communities, these are fragile communities. These are communities that lost their language, lost their culture. Uh, when you when you when you when you raise things like the experience of I saw a tweet the other day raising problems of fatherhood in the black community. Where does that come from? What happens when you can move a black man from one plantation to another plantation at the whim at the drop of a hat? You do that over several hundred years. How does that disrupt and affect? family life in the black community. We're talking about a community after slavery uh, that had nothing, didn't didn't have money, had to make do the best that it could. It did that in the Caribbean. These are people that came from villages to this country. So endemic within that are issues of poverty, of, of inequality, by virtue of that fact. And of course, that plays out in the United States and African-Americans. So that's why I say it's structural and attitudes to these communities are structural because I'm afraid the stuff that built Britain up, the money where it was spent, the institutions and the lack of discussion and and the fact that none of this is in the history books. You can't learn any of this. Uh, Certainly we didn't when we were at school learn any of this. And it's still the case that today young people don't really learn this. They learn not to be racist, but they do not learn the foundations of where that comes from and the history and the stories and why, why we've got to take the stuff on and take it on seriously. So I'm going to ask you two very unfair questions. They're unfair because they suggest there are simple or short answers to which there are not. Uh, I mean, not least the reasons you've eloquently just set out, but you're going to be, if Labour win the next election, in a position as Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice of enormous power and in a position to affect change. What's, what's going to be, what, what are you going to do in respect of A, making people in this country realise the complexities of our own history and how that plays out today? on large sections of our communities. And secondly, what, are you, what, what would a Labour government be doing on day one to address these deep racial inequalities in the country? Sorry, very well, unfair, but you are, hey, you're a politician, so you're, you're used to being asked to give answers. It's, it's, it's brutally unfair. Look, I'm going to be cheeky in the way I answer that first off, but then I'm going to say something slightly more serious. The cheeky way that I'm going to, it's actually cheeky is not the right word. It's its um, slightly brutal, actually. I was contacted by one of the um, television, I won't say which ones, television stations this week. And they said, David, we're really interested. Could you do a documentary on blackness? We really think the time has come. And I said to them, no, I'm not going to do a documentary on blackness. I think you should commission a documentary on whiteness. Uh, talk to white people about why they're still racist. Don't come and tell me and ask me yet again to explain the fact of structural racism in Britain. It's boring. And so I'm pushing that slightly back to you, Richard, because why should I yet again explain in our country what we have to do? Uh, I did a because review. Because you'll be Lord, uh, uh, you'll be Lord uh, Chancellor is the answer to I'm, I'm, being, I'm being unfair to you. But yep. what I'm saying is this has got to be taken on by m- much bigger forces than simply... If I am 
Lord Chancellor under a Labour government, Britain's first black Lord Chancellor. Of course, I, as Lord Chancellor, will want to see my review that I that that was a cross-party review. And I'm really pleased David Cameron asked me to do it. It was a, it was a political consensus moment, properly implemented and deepened. Um, and I definitely think that there, there, let me just run through some of the issues. I think we can do a lot on criminal records in our country, which traps uh, those who've committed crimes in their 20s into a lifetime of unemployment well into their 30s. Uh, if we actually just change our, our laws on criminal records, uh, and, and of course, you don't keep them uh, sealed from the criminal justice system. But I think the onus to, 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 to hand them over to employ employers is, is unnecessary and needs reform. And the government has been slow to reform. Uh, I do want to see a sort of diverse judiciary in our country uh, that you would see now if you went to New Zealand, if you went to Canada, other law, common law jurisdictions, indeed the United States, although, of course, they have election in the United States, which makes their system slightly different to ours. And I frankly think that at the moment, We've got 8% of our judiciary uh, coming from black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds. And in terms of black men and women, it's paltry. It's frankly pathetic for a 21st century modern country. Um, uh, there's much that we can do there. And I'm not convinced that the reforms we made to the Judicial Appointments Commission uh, have stood up and have stood the length of time. In fact, I'd almost say that the pat on the shoulder would have delivered more <laughs> minority ethnic uh, 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 um, judges by now, as you see in the cabinet. Uh, than the current system. So something has gone horribly wrong and it would be strange if the Labour government didn't take that on. Um, uh, I think there have been areas of progress. The CPS uh, has been stronger in these areas. Uh, probation has been stronger in these areas, but obviously Chris Galing decimated probation, so there's a lot to do there. I've got a personal ambition to reduce the amount of women in prison. That's not just BAME women, that's all women. I'm yet to meet a woman uh, who um, is not in prison because of a man. And I think we ought to make it an objective to reduce the amount of women in prison because when you put lock them up, you're locking up their children. And it is a travesty. And I pause at this point because so many people do not know this, that when you look at our young offenders institutions, 51% comes from a black Asian or minority ethnic background. That, that figure is off the scale in terms of what we have set in play, because, of course, many, very sadly, of those young offenders will go into our adult prison. And it is now the case that per capita in this country, um, it's worse. You're more likely to be in the criminal justice system as a black man in the UK than in the United States. Many people don't even realise that. That's all in the review. We should make that happen. But there are broader issues around the curriculum, around inequality in education, in housing that we need to take on. But as I say that, because I don't want people to think that, you know, I only care about race because I absolutely don't. As I said at the time of my review, there, you know, there remain in Britain historic issues for white working class communities that have not been addressed. And many of my recommendations go to they have issues. You know, let's change criminal records for that community. Uh, uh, let's let's lower the amount of women in prison for that community. 
um, let's deal with issues of, of the judiciary, because if there are no black, Asian and minority ethnic judges, I'm not quite sure where the working class white ones are either. Uh, I'm still trying to find a white working class magistrate. <laughs> um, and that is the cornerstone of our system in that vast majority of criminal uh, cases passed through our magistrates' courts. So it's quite a big agenda, I think, of reform for any Labour Lord Chancellor in our country to renew the settlement and the offer, uh, particularly after what will have been a tough period of austerity. I think the other area that would be remiss if I didn't mention it uh, is, of course, legal aid. Um, I happen to believe that that invention, that Attlee invention of a public service uh, is 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 now in real danger of falling away. Uh, uh, we're going to end up with advocates and lawyers of the quality that you see in very sadly in parts of the states. Because why would you go into criminal law, family law, employment, very important areas of law, if if they're not legally aided and funded? Why would you do it? Uh, and particularly in a recession, these areas become really really important. So one of the jobs for me is to be an advocate, to narrate a story that the public can understand and relate to and move away from this period where we describe, just by virtue of being a, a lawyer, uh, we describe people as fat cats who are a long way from being fat cats. David, can I ask you something about Windrush? Um, you mentioned the importance of history, um, which I think is uh, absolutely central to learning the lessons of, of Windrush. At the time of the hostile environment policy being introduced, I was advising the Joint Committee on Human Rights, and it really was the most extraordinary moment. Um, and I think one of the things the review picks up on is the the, the failure really of um, our scrutiny processes to prevent that sort of thing from happening. And the whole episode, really, I think we all now see as one of the most shaming moments in modern times, really. Um, but what I'm, I'm quite interested in is your comments, connecting your comments about uh, whether the amount of cut through that there's been at the moment um, and the, the degree of public consciousness of this need to reckon with the UK's imperial past and uh, its colonial history, uh, whether that can be connected now at this particular moment in time to the discussion about how we respond to the lessons that we need to learn from Windrush. So we've got a fantastic report with some really excellent recommendations. Those recommendations include some recommendations about the importance of history. There's a recommendation six, I think it is, um, recommends a learning and development program um, for the Home Office um, about UK colonial history um, and historic approaches to migration. Um, and that's the sort of recommendation that ultimately brings about the long-term departmental cultural change that I think many people who have been scrutinising the Home Office for many years have felt is what needs to be uh, what needs to be progressed. Um, so is, is there a way of connecting what you've identified as this kind of unusual degree of public reckoning at the moment um, with the discussion about what lessons should be learned now from Windrush in the context of this review, which has yet to be implemented? I would encourage any of your listeners to read Wendy Williams' review, download it and read it. And the reason it's worth reading is because what you see in that fantastic piece of work is successive immigration hacks designed to limit the scope, possibility and citizenry of West Indian and Caribbean people, despite that historic umbilical cord that, that, that the community from I from must by virtue have with this country. 
Um, and I say that, you know, very, very gently. There are very few um, communities in the world whose history, you know, really goes back so little way. Uh, and, and why? why Britain has a deep responsibility. And there were successive acts that limited their rights uh, there. Uh, and then we got the hostile environment, um, which in simple terms represented UKIP moving from the extreme into the mainstream in terms of public policy. Uh, and then you get low-hanging fruit and targets for Home, of, home office ministers, and guess who the low-hanging fruit are? They're ordinary West Indian folk who um, worked on the tube, who worked in the NHS, who were cleaners, who were porters, um, and they were just treated in the most abominable way and are still being treated in the most abominable way because it's extraordinary that only 60 of them have got any compensation, and the compensation regime that was set up was so miserly particularly when you think of the travesty that their, that their uh, enslaved ancestors after slavery got nothing and the slave owners got, got, got um, uh, uh, billions of pounds that taxpayers in Britain only ended paying in 2015. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. And of course, it's a shameful one. It's, it's, and, and, and will remain, I think, it's indelible now uh, on our history. And I can tell you also that it's not just Wendy Williams' review. Uh, it's also the Equality and Human Rights Commission that have announced that they are going to be doing their own review of home office practice. There's a sense in which this is a department that's been out of control. This is a department that, that successive ministers have struggled to manage, and actually that goes back uh, even to the Labour period in office. It seems a world, a dystopian, Orwellian, nightmare world unto itself that does need reform. But of course, underlying that is something around Britain's sense of itself in the world and Britain's sense of 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 and and it's wrestling with migration just one other point i'd make to that um it might be a positive point of course we're also having this conversation where in a few months time we're going to be exiting the european union we're having this conversation where um uh, the government policy is to forge rapidly trade deals uh with the world and and obviously the starting point for that uh, is the former Commonwealth, particularly with whom we've got relationships. Well, look, I think if you want a trade deal with India, uh, if you want a trade deal with Pakistan, if you want a trade deal with, se se you know, with, you know, several countries in the Caribbean, you do well to have reckoned with your history, because uh, I don't think you'll find that those countries are up. Uh, for the, the, the system that was in play prior to joining the European Union. Uh, I think you'll find that they have a rich discourse that's post-colonial. So I think we're going to have to rapidly get up to speed, or particularly a massive economy like, the, like India are going to, you know, boy, uh, let's see who's going to have the upper hand. David, can I just bring it all together, really, and put it under kind of a legal wrapper? Please do. Um, well, I'm ask, in fact, I'm going to ask you to put it under legal wrapper, and I'll tell you why. So, I mean, this conversation, in common with a number of conversations we've had, looking at what this country's response to COVID has been and the international response to COVID has been, 
and the way that law and democracy has held up to it or has not held up to it. And one of the particular aspects that we've looked at, and you've really dug down into it, is how this crisis has exposed deep ingrained inequalities. Now, to what degree do you think going forward and to what degree are you and Labour and other opposition parties starting to think that this needs to be enshrined in some form of constitutional resettlement where rights that perhaps traditionally were thought of as rights in a notional sense, but never in an enforceable sense, and I mean sort of rights to healthcare, rights to decent levels of education and housing, that they actually become enshrined as constitutional rights that people can go to court and enforce uh, if violated. Look, I'm not going to announce uh, new policy on this show uh, because it would be wrong of me to do that. But I would say that uh, if any of your listeners uh, buy my book, Tribes, that came out in March uh, just before the lockdown uh, and came out prior to be, be, me being appointed shadow uh, Lord Chancellor, they will see in it that I am very, very keen on constitutional reform um, and that I think that there is a need to renew the settlement. Now, some of that flows from, I think, the fracture between a centralised state and um, weak local government here in the UK. And you're seeing around the world that in countries that are more federated, Germany, uh, much of Northern Europe, Canada, slightly stronger responses in these these times of division. Some of it flows uh, 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 from entrenching and embedding notions of human rights and growing those notions beyond just privacy, freedom of speech, uh, understanding the right to housing, the right to education, these very fundamental uh, parts of the settlement uh, 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 need attention. Um, uh, and clearly, uh, clearly, I would, I suppose I would also say that whilst we have in the context of race, you know, we, we had the Roy Jenkins Race Relations Act, we had Harriet Harman's Race Amendment Act, um, but it's a bit like democracy. You have to constantly revisit these issues. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been successive immigration bills, but they've not been successive attempts to come back to the story of race. And perhaps when there's frustration from the black community that you've got David Lammy's review, you've got 20 years on from at first and what's happened, you've got the Angelini review on deaths in custody. Uh, there's so many reviews Part of the frustration is the implementation, and perhaps that does need uh, uh, government's ability to re-return to legislation. But I suppose I would say alongside the constitutional settlement, alongside legislation, um, uh, clearly, uh, as much as I'm, I'm a lawyer by background and instinct, a lot of what we've talked about here is cultural. Um, A lot of what we've talked about in the end um, is 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 hearts as well as minds, uh, and I think we all know that you can kind of put things through Parliament, and somehow the elite uh, have, have have given it a nod, but actually on the ground things don't change that much. So somehow we've got to pull off pull off both, but it's it's rocky, and the challenge I think with 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 constitutional uh, work is that constitutional work is hard 
uh, countries struggle with it out with of crisis. They do better when there's a collective view from the population that we need to fix our constitution in response to this crisis. And there isn't, I think, I think it's contested, there isn't quite a collective view. I mean, you might have thought that there was a collective view flowing out of Brexit, but of course there were sharp divides and one community would say there's absolutely no need for constitutional reform, whilst I suppose those who voted Remain would say that there was. So so that's the, ch- it's easy to say, hard to deliver, but I think, I mean, I, in, my, in my book, I looked at citizens' assemblies and how you can, build in something that doesn't just come from great esteemed minds such as such as yourselves but comes comes from um from from folk on the ground who can who can wrestle with their constitution you know their lack of local autonomy for example and embed it in some in some higher document just quickly picking up on that david what about the consensus that we could say has emerged during the coronavirus the pandemic in terms of right to health uh, importance of the NHS, um, right to financial security. Uh, one of the revelations, I think, has been um, the degree to which that actually has united the country. So is there an opportunity there in terms Definitely. of... There is an opportunity. Definitely there's an opportunity there. And I think very sadly, by the end of this, there will be uh, widespread acceptance that Britain was an outlier in the world, um, uh, slow to lock down, slow to test, slow to trace, and a high number of... Uh, collective loss of life. So so there is an opportunity. However, and this is the however, sorry to be a bit negative today, but the British tendency is to have a review, is to have an inquiry, um, it's to kick it into long grass. The inquiry takes years. Um, I've seen it so many times, whether it's Iraq, whether it's McPherson, whether it's, I mean, uh, um, Grenfell is taking place. And somehow... When the inquiry results or review is produced several years later, it just doesn't feel as urgent. Um, And so there's also, I mean, and so how can we, you know, I've begun to think, you know, perhaps the mechanism of more powerful select committees that can make these things happen in real time, have the power and the resource might be a more effective means to, because somehow, that, the, you know, what I'm hearing a lot in the black communities, I'm tired. You, you hear it a lot. But I think there's a sort of tired, collective tiredness at the way that we do things that mean that we almost lose the moment even when we had it. So, yeah, lots to do. Well, David, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'm not going to let you go without our tradition now, for all the people we speak to from all around the world of asking for a book recommendation that you've either read during lockdown insofar as you've had any time or you would recommend that people read in lockdown. And you can't plug your own. You've already done that once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there is a fantastic book. Uh, g- given all that's happening, I think there's a fantastic book that I would recommend called White fragility um and it's a very thin book it's a very quick read it's written by robin d'angelo um who um is a professor but she's in human resources and she 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 really writes about why uh, it goes back to what i said before i think there's any need to keep coming back to black communities about these issues she talks about um uh 
attitudes amongst white populations to issues of race. And I think it's a very, very interesting book. Now, it's largely, of course, through the lens of the United States of America. But I think for your listeners, as a very thin read that literally can be read on a, on a, on a train journey, it, it's very interesting. And I, uh, I borrowed some of her work um, in, in, in my recent book, Tribes. David, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Um, so, uh, Murray, Helen, time for some reflections. I should explain, Helen, your sound was out. So uh, the fact that you weren't here asking any questions isn't because uh, uh, all the blokes were just occupying the space. Um, very and sure. yeah. Very notion of it. Uh, so, Murray, Helen, quite a lot there to chew on. Um, Murray, what's, what are your thoughts and reflections Yes, lots of very interesting observations there from David. I wanted to draw together two, actually. One, first of all, I was very interested that he thinks that this clearly is a moment when there's an unusual degree of cut through to the public about the need for some sort of reckoning with the UK's imperial past and that that's something which there hasn't really been um, much of an opportunity to do uh, in previous years. But he thinks that this clearly is a moment. Um, And interestingly, I thought... uh, he thought one of the reasons for that was because everyone's at home. And so and so these scenes are, are being watched much more widely by everybody. And that's encouraged much more public engagement with it, which is sort of slightly counterintuitive. But I think he's, he may be right about that. So that was interesting, saying that there is this, I think, cut through moment and this opportunity for a more broad public reckoning. And then he went on to say that the way in which we tend to deal with structural problems in this country is to have reviews set up reviews which take a few years to report and then when the recommendations come out um the sort of immediate urgency tends to have passed um and of course we've got this report into the windrush um episode and the lessons that we need to to learn from that and i'm I'm particularly interested in how we join up those two observations of david's that we're at this particularly opportune moment to have this broader public discussion and we've also got to really uh, work out how to implement the recommendations in the lessons learned review on Windrush in quite an urgent way. And I think that's a big challenge for all of us, and in particular for parliamentarians, to see how they can actually try and follow through on those recommendations, which include recommendations to uh, provide some history um, learning and development programs to bring about cultural change um, within um, government. I also finally was interested in his observations about constitutional change and possibilities, because I think he clearly does think that uh, the coronavirus pandemic has revealed some degree of consensus, um, which he also thinks needs to underpin any lasting process of constitutional change. So I think there's some interesting thoughts to follow up on there as well. Helen, I'd be interested in your kind of thoughts on what we've been seeing in the last week or so in any event. I mean, you come at it from a couple of really interesting angles. I mean, you've been at the forefront of using law to try and address inequalities and discrimination for, for many years. And also, of course, you're head of an Oxford college, not one, not Oriel with a statue of Rhodes, but a town that has been very much in the public eye in its response to the killing. What's your take as to the moment we find ourselves in and whether you see this from your perspective as a, as a, a particular moment in which change could be effective? I mean, I do think it is a very interesting moment when there is a sense that these are conversations not to be battered away or told to push into the long grass, but to address now. Um, I was struck by what David said, 
sort of batting it back to you that it, it's not for him as a black person always to come up with the solutions um, and certainly speaking as a as a woman who spends a lot of time talking about the problems of women in law and so on I, I, I understand that I understand the cognitive load of, of being left with the issue on the other hand um, I'm also very much informed by what the 90s disability rights activists used to say about nothing about us without us. I don't think you can solve these problems if you don't incorporate um, diverse voices and perspectives. I think that's a really important thing to do. We do have to listen to the lived experiences of people who can explain why, for example, vis visible symbols matter um, or the kinds of things that would be interesting to and be in a curriculum. So I think it's really important, um, certainly in the university context, that uh, academics and um, people who run the institution are, are talking to students about their experience, but also using the concept of education to say, how do we in, what broaden the curriculum? What sort of work ought people to be thinking about in terms of equality? And bringing that legal perspective, the, the public sector equality duty, which is something I'm very interested in, um, requires public sector decision makers, which include educators largely, um, to give due regard to the need to advance equality of opportunity in the things that they do. And I think that has inherent in it a duty to ask questions because you can't um, work out what you might do to advance equality of opportunity if you haven't worked out what the inequalities are and where they come from. Well, we're going to stay with this theme next week. We're going to look at it from a slightly different angle, back perhaps the statues, which is how do we come to terms with our past? Why should we? And how do we understand that from a rule of law perspective? And we're going to be joined by Paul Van Zyl, who was formerly Executive Secretary of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and then set up the International Centre for Transitional Justice. So it's a theme we're going to stay with for next week. We hope you can join us. Our thanks to our producer, Rachel Murray. Thank you. <laughs>